The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We're going to be thinking today about uh, Christ as the revelation of the wisdom of God. Uh, and so we'll think about wisdom as uh, people have thought about it, you know, uh, for uh, many, many years, many, many uh, millennia even. Uh, Cervantes uh, once said that a proverb is a short sentence based on long experience. And uh, Robert Benchley got off another one, that there are two classes of people in the world those who constantly divide people into two classes and those who don't. And uh, you, notice, you notice a difference between those two proverbs. <laughs> you see, the first is a genuine proverb, a short sentence based on long experience that has wisdom in it. Whereas the second is an aphorism, but hardly a, a proverb. It's like a private dressed up in a general's uniform. Uh, it's uh, uh, not uh, really uh, human history compressed into the size of a seed, but it's uh, uh, a, a, a really a, a personal observation that's uh, uh, presented as though it were a universal truth. So. Uh, we do have uh, proverbs, we do have aphorisms, we do have sentences that people remember. Uh, Tom Nicholas once uh, taught in the Old Testament department here, he's a pastor now, but uh, uh, he, had, um, he had a chapel talk, I remember, here years ago, and he was talking about proverbs and the book of Proverbs, and he said, uh, you know about uh, the milk of the word and you know about the strong meat of the word but I want to talk to you about the hard candy of the word and uh, I, I thought that was pretty good because uh, a proverb you see is exactly like hard candy <laughs> it's not something you gulp down you have to uh, turn it around under your tongue and <laughs> uh, you can keep it there for quite a while and reflect on it and think about it that's how it's designed to be used if you ever tried to speed read Psalm 119, uh, you know what I mean. It's, uh, it's not designed for speed reading, it's designed for reflection, for uh, thinking about the separate statements that are made there. Psalm 119 is, of course, a wisdom psalm. Now, in the uh, Old Testament, uh, wisdom is recognized as a, a separate uh, uh, understanding, a separate approach to the service of the Lord, so that counsel is set beside law and prophecy. For example, in Ezekiel 7, verse 26, they shall seek a vision of the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. There's prophecy, law, and counsel as three categories of divine revelation. 
uh, Jeremiah 18, 18. The enemies of Jeremiah say, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Now that's even more interesting in a way because you see the connections, the links. Uh, the priest was uh, obliged to teach the law to the people. Uh, and uh, the wise were the sources of counsel as to uh, prudent action. Uh, and then the word of God came from the prophet. So uh, there you see the, uh, the uh, organization of uh, the forms of revelation. So wisdom uh, builds her house and uh, she has set up her nine pillars. Now, that drawing is not archaeologically accurate. I have no idea how the nine pillars were distributed, not having done adequate research. But I, I did get seven pillars, isn't it? Not nine. One, two, three, four, five, seven. Yes, why am I saying nine? Seven pillars. Uh, you've got the right number on the drawing, even if I get confused talking about it. So, uh, wisdom has set up uh, her house and uh, her seven pillars. Uh, that is to say, uh, there is a, uh, an, an ordered form of wisdom uh, that we may deal with. So uh, let's think for a bit about the place of wisdom in the Old Testament. Uh, Von Rod, in his uh, great book, uh, Wisdom in Israel, uh, defines wisdom this way, that man, through knowledge of the Lord, must learn to become competent with regard to the realities of life. Now notice uh, the elements of that. Uh, through the knowledge of the Lord, competency with regard to the realities of life. Uh, that, I think, is a good definition. That's in his book, Wisdom in Israel, page 310. Uh, wisdom, you see, is in practical life. It's grounded in the covenant. It's under the priority of the ethical and the religious, but it's in the street, not in the temple. Uh, Kidner, in his uh, writing about wisdom, stresses that. It's uh, wisdom to direct behavior, uh, not in the form of worshiping God directly, but in the form of obedience to God in the realities of uh, practical life. Uh, the wise man, R.B.Y. Scott says in his book, The Way of Wisdom in the Old Testament, uh, the wise man, the knowledgeable man, is the one who understands how life should be lived and what it means. Now, the, the best uh, single book on the uh, Old Testament theology of wisdom uh, is in, I've mentioned it in your bibliography, it's the book by Goldsworthy, but... Uh, who's in Australia. But unfortunately, uh, it's out of print now and it's very difficult to get. Uh, but if you ever get a chance to get hold of it, you, you want to get it because it is a biblical theological study. So he's doing the same sort of thing that I'm seeking to do. And he has a, a fine book written on, uh, on wisdom. And this is his rather complicated definition of it, that the wise man is an integrated person who is learning daily through the gospel how to relate not only to himself, but to all things according to the creative purpose of God. 
the, um, the elements there you see again, he's paying more attention than the other writers have uh, to the need for uh, ordering your own life in terms of self-understanding, that you're an integrated person and uh, able, therefore, uh, to relate to yourself, uh, understand who you are, but also to relate to uh, all things according to the purpose of God. Now, wisdom uh, is uh, very ancient uh, in the Near East, the ancient Near East. Uh, the, uh, here I would refer you to uh, Pritchard's book on ancient Near Eastern texts. Uh, the large Pritchard book uh, published it by Princeton University uh, is in two volumes, one volume text, the other volume uh, uh, pictures. Uh, have most of you referred to it at some time or other? Good. Uh, and you know about the, the shorter one, uh, paperback, uh, that, that uh, is an abbreviated form. Uh, unfortunately, the paperback one doesn't have uh, uh, some of the things that you would need to refer to uh, to look at ancient uh, Egyptian wisdom. But the larger book has it. And it contains the instruction of Tahotep, uh, which dates back to 2450 BC. Uh, 2450 BC, uh, a half a millennium earlier than the time of Abraham. You know, it's uh, uh, extremely ancient. And uh, it has many parallels uh, with uh, uh, statements in the Proverbs. Uh, warnings against uh, uh, a desire for uh, women, uh, a man who's so driven by sexual desire that this leads to death. Uh, there are statements that you should love your wife at home and feed and clothe her. And uh, this statement, she is a profitable field, <laughs> which uh, uh, contrasts with uh, Proverbs, doesn't it? Uh, Proverbs 12, 4, a worthy woman is the crown of her husband. That's a little different statement. And uh, the, the higher view of women in the covenant is evident also, of course, in Proverbs 31. Uh, but uh, in both, uh, you get instruction to turn people from folly. Uh, the instruction of the wise to warn against ways of folly. And there's the instruction of Amen M. Opet, which is dated somewhere, according to uh, Annette, uh, dated somewhere between the 10th and the 6th century B.C. And again, many parallels with the Proverbs. And a, a very valuable thing about the uh, the uh, presentation of this uh, in the ancient Near Eastern textbook is that in the margin, uh, you may have noticed this, in the margin it has the uh, references from the book of Proverbs where you get similar Proverbs uh, in the Bible. So uh, you can check the form that the proverb has in the Bible with the form that it had in ancient Near Eastern uh, proverbial literature. And uh, we won't be going through all that today, of course, but there are many remarkable uh, similarities about uh, not robbing the poor, about the wise man being a fruitful tree, 
uh, warnings against removing the landmarks and especially removing the landmarks of uh, widows. And uh, in the uh, Egyptian uh, uh, proverb, uh, one satisfies God with the will of the Lord who determines the boundaries of the arable land. See, the, the boundaries of land are very important. And in the book of Proverbs, remove not the ancient landmark and enter not the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against the Proverbs 23, uh, verses 10 and 11. In uh, Amen M. Opet, it says, Riches take wings like geese. In the Proverbs, they take wings like eagles. <laughs> uh, very, very similar, of course. Uh, the Egyptian warning is always against the heated man. Uh, that he's always uh, the problem. And uh, the, the silent man is the one who's uh, doing a better job of it. Uh, Proverbs also says, uh, make no friendship with a man given to anger, uh, Proverbs 22, 24. So uh, in Proverbs 2, the heated man, the man who gets uh, angry quickly, uh, is uh, one to be avoided. And uh, there are warnings in both against greed, against false witness, uh, against false uh, weights, uh, the uh, uh, difference between the words that men say and what the God does in the Egyptian uh, uh, collection. And in Proverbs 19:21, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. So again, you have uh, that distinction between uh, that which is determined and that which uh, a man uh, uh, thinks he can do. And both talk about, of course, restraint of speech, not talking too much. Now, uh, of course, th this uh, raises some problems for Christians because if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture as we do, uh, how can it be that there would be so many parallels with ancient uh, pagan literature. And uh, why does the book of Proverbs have these uh, observations that are shared with uh, Egyptian wisdom literature? The uh, uh, one point to notice, of course, is the fact that uh, the book of Proverbs itself speaks of organizations and collections of Proverbs and gives names of men who were collectors of Proverbs. And uh, we'll see again, we'll get back to this, but uh, this is a period in the history of Israel uh, when uh, Israel uh, has uh, more open windows to what's going on in the world around. You see, they've been brought into the land, uh, the, they're immediately involved in battle with the inhabitants of the land, and then uh, even after they begin to possess the land, the uh, Philistine invasion uh, from the seacoast and the uh, spread of the Philistines in the land is a major threat to Israel's existence. And it's not until under King David that the Philistines are conquered and the land is secure and the capital city, Jerusalem, is for the first time captured. Uh, it's not until then 
under Solomon that there can be a reign of peace and uh, there can be a time when uh, they can now begin to think about <laughs> uh, more cultural issues, you see. Uh, they're not just fighting for some survival every minute, but they are now an established people. And, uh, of course, we'll come to this again, but a key to it all is Solomon's wisdom. And Solomon is an author of Proverbs, uh, but he's also a collector of Proverbs. And uh, the uh, kings of the earth hear of the wisdom of Solomon, and they come to learn more wisdom from him. And the kind of wisdom they're interested in is this uh, wisdom of uh, uh, understanding uh, sensible ways of getting things done, of <laughs> how to rule a country, uh, things that work and things that don't work. And, uh, and they value the wisdom given to Solomon in, in such matters. But of course, although there are all these many parallels, there's nevertheless uh, a, a remarkable distinctiveness and you see that even when you compare proverb with proverb, the different position of women, for example, in the proverbs is over against the Egyptian proverbs. Uh, and above all, of course, uh, the proverbs in the Bible are all oriented toward the Lord who is revealed in the Bible. And there is an enormous difference uh, between the Egyptian concept of ma'at M-A-A-T, uh, the, the, the Ma'at of uh, Egypt, uh, which uh, is the god of order in uh, uh, the world. But in Egyptian uh, understanding, this comes through as fate rather than a, a personal god to whom we're related. And so the order in creation and providence uh, for the book of Proverbs is the order that comes from God himself. Uh, the Egyptian uh, Proverbs all assume polytheism. The uh, Proverbs of the Bible assume covenant theology, stress righteousness, and uh, are given in the context of redemption. So uh, there is a, a remarkable uh, difference between the Proverbs of Egypt and the Proverbs uh, of the Bible. Now, in the, in the Bible, the Proverbs are concerned with the direction of daily life. And you see, I've, I've done a little uh, diagram here that out of the law of God, uh, there is, uh, or on the law of God, there is meditation. Uh, blessed is uh, the man, uh, the first psalm says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now that meditation in the law of the Lord uh, has uh, two streams. Uh, one stream uh, is the stream of worship, uh, meditation directed toward God himself. And in Psalm 111 and verse 2, uh, you have the evidence of that. Psalm 111 is an acrostic psalm beginning with the letters of the alphabet and it is a wisdom psalm that ends uh, with the key text of the wisdom literature that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So one fruit of meditation is uh, 
is wisdom. Wisdom regarding daily life. How ought you to live your life? How ought you to make the decisions? How do you make the choices? Uh, uh, that's wisdom. And of course, <laughs> that's, uh, that's very important in my agenda in wanting to teach about this because uh, I, I want us to really start thinking about that, uh, that uh, the way in which the Bible presents wisdom is the basic direction uh, for our lives. Therefore, it is the way of guidance. It's how we walk in the way of the Lord. And when we see that all wisdom is focused in Christ, then we will see that it's our efforts uh, in communion with the Lord and with his word uh, to be pleasing to him in everything that constitutes the wisdom out of which we make the decisions of daily life. Well, we'll get back to that, but... Uh, uh, I, I want to make that clear from the start, that there's a meditation on the scripture that uh, develops in us. Uh, you see, it's the richly indwelling word of Christ that produces the wisdom uh, by which we praise God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs too. Uh, but also, it's the source of the wisdom by which we direct our daily lives. Uh, so, both. Uh, meditation for worship and meditation uh, for obedience, uh, Proverbs 9.10. So meditation takes these two direction, directions. Uh, wisdom, therefore, is distinct from the word of God uh, in the sense that it is distinguished from the law. Uh, those who forsake the law praise the wicked. It's distinct from the law, but it is built upon the law. Proverbs 28, 4. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. And uh, Psalm 119, of course, is an entire psalm focusing on the law, on the word of God, and uh, pointing out that all the things that wisdom seeks are to be gained by founding life uh, on the, the revelation, the precepts, the, uh, the revealed word of God. But uh, it's also distinguished from the prophets, uh, though related to them. When there is no vision, the people run wild, but he that keeps the law, happy is he. Proverbs 29, 18. Now, that... Uh, that statement, uh, when there's no vision, the people run wild, that's a reference to prophetic vision. Uh, when there's no word from the Lord, the people run wild. Uh, you see that in the book of Judges. So uh, it is distinct from the law, but built upon it. Wisdom is distinct from praise as an immediate response to God, that one arrow by being uh, the response in terms of obedience in daily life. So wisdom then is concerned with the active direction of our lives in likeness to God. Uh, God's wisdom uh, is uh, one of his uh, principal attributes, as we will see, uh, but uh, we are made in God's image and because of that, uh, we too may seek wisdom. 
uh, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. Proverbs 20, verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his inmost parts. And uh, we also read in Proverbs 21, 30, there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. See, where wisdom exists, it must be in relation to God. Now, wisdom is concerned with understanding relationships. Uh, relationships to the world, the works of God in nature and history. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Psalm 111.2, uh, Wisdom Psalm. <laughs> Uh, you, you seek out the works of the Lord as you try to understand them. And, of course, you have that tremendous uh, uh, passage in uh, 1 Kings chapter 4 where the wisdom of Solomon is described and where we are told that Solomon's wisdom is concerned with God's natural creation. Let's uh, stop and read that passage, 1 Kings 4, beginning with verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now notice there's the recognition of uh, the fact that uh, wisdom exists in other cultures and uh, it's very famous. Uh, uh, the, the wisdom uh, of Mesopotamia and the wisdom of Egypt, uh, these are the great reigning wisdoms of the world as uh, it was then known. And uh, the, Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon is greater than all. For he was wiser than all men then Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahal. His fame was in all the nations round about. Now, unfortunately, we can't locate any one of these uh, famous wisdom men. <laughs> Their works have all perished, but uh, Solomon was wiser than any of them. It would be real fun if we ever came up with one, and you could see uh, what some of the proverbs of uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, of Calcol or Darda were. Uh, and he, Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. 3,000 proverbs. His songs 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. A pretty extensive study of botany, you see. Uh, from the great trees uh, to the smallest little plants he studied. Uh, he spoke also of beasts and birds and creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, again, you see how interesting that is. Uh, Solomon uh, was a scientist. He was one who tried to organize and understand uh, botany and biology. And uh, he began, of course, uh, where he was to study the flora and fauna uh, of the area. 
what did he do? What were the wise things he said about it? Uh, what did he observe? Uh, what, uh, was he classifying? Uh, was he uh, observing animal behavior? Was he, you see, if he was studying plants, uh, it seems almost inevitable that he'd be classifying, right? <laughs> Uh, what's like what in the uh, in the plant uh, kingdom? Well, here are the works of the Lord, right? And so Solomon wants to know about them. I'm, I'm uh, a little uh, dismayed that this passage uh, uh, seems to get little attention generally. Uh, every now and then you see somebody coming up with it, but it, it's very important in the Old Testament because you see what it's saying. Here at the pinnacle of God's revelation, uh, when God has done what he promised and uh, restored his people, given them the land, and Solomon's built the temple and all that, uh, Solomon, you see, is given this scientific wisdom. He can proceed with uh, uh, the creation mandate. He can begin to uh, understand the world and to interpret it and to study it. So, uh, you see... Uh, it raises the fascinating uh, question of Israelite culture. Very important as we think about Christian culture. Uh, see, it, Israelite culture was not strong in architecture, was it? He got uh, Hiram of Tyre to supply some people to uh, help construct the temple. Uh, uh, Israelite culture, uh, did it develop much in terms of, uh, of viticulture? Perhaps so, I don't know, we're not assured of it, uh, but uh, the vines were very important. But where did Israelite culture develop most? Unfortunately, we don't know what Solomon learned about plants or animals, do we? But, uh, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's uh, God's wisdom that decides what we need to know. <laughs> uh, we can check out plants and animals ourselves too, can't we? Uh, but uh, where was Israel particularly rich culturally? What was remarkable in the ancient Near East about Israel culturally? Pardon? Hymns, yes, the songs of Israel, the psalms, you see, the poetry, uh, the word uh, in the prophets. Uh, the, uh, uh, what makes Israel remarkable in ancient Near Eastern culture is uh, the, the volume of uh, writing, uh, the uh, value put on writing because of the word of the Lord and the... Uh, now, I don't mean that there was more writing in Israel than in uh, uh, other cultures. There was lots of writing in Mesopotamia. After all, all these uh, libraries that were found from Mesopotamia. But uh, so many of the libraries are, uh, are business records, you know, that they had to keep on clay because they didn't have a computer uh, yet. But there were data banks of, of uh, financial transactions and uh, uh, now, there, of course, sure, there were forms of poetry, there were hymns, there were legends uh, in the ancient Near East, and obviously Israel's have been preserved much better than others, uh, but yet uh, you must recognize 
that here there was uh, a culture that has left its imprint on the whole history of the West afterward. Uh, the understanding uh, of uh, the Lord that leads to the praise of the Lord and leads to reflection on uh, the wisdom of the Lord, but also receives the prophetic word from the Lord. So uh, here is uh, wisdom then in terms of relation to the world, understanding the world that God has made, but also understanding men and society. And that includes both individual behavior and the kind of wisdom that's necessary for king's courts. Uh, individual behavior, uh, the difference between the wise man and the fool. Uh, what actions are characteristic of wisdom and what actions reveal folly but also in king's courts. Now, wisdom was very important in the courts of all the kings, and the coming of the queen of Sheba uh, to uh, learn the wisdom of Solomon uh, is uh, given to us in the Old Testament to show how it was true that kings and queens came to learn of the wisdom of Solomon. Now, of course, uh, uh, the queen of Sheba has been... Uh, hopelessly uh, made concrete in, uh, uh, by uh, Hollywood. Uh, it's, uh, it's impossible for us to think of the Queen of Sheba in any other uh, context. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the Queen of Sheba, you see, is given in the Bible in quite a different way. Uh, not to say that here was a little uh, romantic episode in a very busy romantic life uh, that, that, that's not the idea. The, the idea is that here is one who comes from afar, one of the kings of the peoples, uh, coming to learn of the wisdom that's now to be found in Israel, right? And, uh, and this wisdom is supreme in the earth. Uh, and where is it found? Well, it's found in two ways. It's found in the law of God, uh, by which you see the wisdom that God's given to his people, but it's found in the king that God has set over them. So the focus of God's gift to Israel is in his anointed. And it's in the wisdom of his anointed that you see the outreach of Israel's influence and therefore the fulfillment of the promise that in the seed of Abraham would all the nations be blessed. So the queen of Sheba is blessed as she comes in and uh, sees the wisdom of Solomon. And in the 10th chapter of uh, 1 Kings, it says uh, she, she pronounces that blessing, a typical wisdom statement, of course. But uh, blessed are they that stand in your presence and hear you. Uh, those who stand before Solomon and have that privilege and hear his wise judgments. Uh, they are truly blessed people. They, they have uh, the mark of God's blessing on them. <clears throat> yes? It never occurred to me. It's uh, allegorizing beyond my wildest dreams. But uh, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> uh, the bride of Christ. Oh, my, no. Uh, there, there's no hint of any... Uh, rom uh, any uh, there's no hint that she became a lover of Solomon. Yeah, you're gathering the Gentiles, isn't that the church? Oh, yeah, 
Oh, you're gathering in the Gentiles, sure, but uh, oh, I, I, I don't know if the if the fact that she's a woman and not a man. I don't know that that has any. Um, I don't. You know, you have to ask in the narrative. Does that have significance? Are we supposed to be surprised by that when we read the narrative? No, it's true. There weren't many, but yes. I like that. That's nice. That's very nice. No, that's very nice. Uh, that she sort of suggests to us Lady Wisdom. There, there's a great idea. Uh, well, see, uh, class this morning and uh, a, a new bright idea emerges. That's very good. That's, uh, no, I do like that. Because, you know, I think there's some ground for that. You see what I mean? That wisdom is always personified as a woman. And here is a woman, and she's like Lady Wisdom coming from afar, but uh, she's completely outclassed by Solomon because uh, here's the wisdom of the Lord. Uh, of course, you ran into a little trouble there because the wisdom of the Lord is Lady Wisdom too. So <laughs> I, I don't know if we're getting very far with this. Uh, I see feminism on the horizon, and I'm beating a speedy retreat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a man who knows. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, some of you don't even know how we're camping out here. I guess. Well, um, why is that flaky? Um, no, I think what is missing. See, if she became Solomon's bride or something like that, and. Uh, if the wedding to the Queen of Sheba uh, would likely be that which could be celebrated in the Psalms for the wedding of Solomon, or if you could make some connection with the Song of Solomon or something, that it's the Queen of Sheba. Uh, but see, then it would make sense. Then it would be uh, justifiable. Uh, but all that seems to be lacking. See, the narrative seems to make no suggestion that she ever married Solomon or anything like that. Uh, she just comes in as a potentate who has her own kingdom, and uh, she's amazed. But the suggestion that, uh, that it's appropriate that you should have uh, a ruler seeking wisdom who is a woman, uh, I think that is important because uh, uh, it is important to know that it's not only the wise man, it's the wise woman in the, in the uh, Hebrew tradition and uh, you not only listen to the counsel of your father, but the counsel of your mother. And, uh, and when wisdom is personified, of course, chokhmah is feminine. So uh, it, 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 that's one place where the, the, the uh, grammatical gender may suggest the kind of uh, um, allegor allegorization or uh, uh, symbolism that, that would be constructed. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's good. So, um, wisdom is uh, concerned, I said, not only with individuals, but with the uh, king's courts and the kind of wisdom that's uh, needed there. Uh, you have a wonderful illustration of that in the story of uh, Hushai. Uh, when, you know, when David is driven out of Jerusalem by his uh, rebellious son Absalom, and uh, Hushai, one of David's counselors, one of his wise men, uh, comes with David. He's loyal to David. But Ahithophel, who's the best of David's counselors, uh, 
betrays David and uh, uh, joins up uh, with his rebellious son Absalom. And uh, when Hushai joins David and David has to flee from Jerusalem and Hushai comes along with him, uh, David says to Hushai, uh, I don't need a whole lot of guidance right now. It's pretty clear what I've got to do. I've got to escape from uh, uh, Absalom and get ready to fight. <laughs> uh, so uh, since, uh, and when it comes to military strategy, uh, David uh, didn't feel great need for a lot of advice from a wise man, apparently. He knew the territory. <laughs> it been all, well, you can fill that one in. Uh, but anyway, uh, David said to Hushai, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to the court and overthrow the council of Ahithophel. Because if you can destroy the council of Ahithophel, you can save me. But if uh, my son listens to Ahithophel and does what Ahithophel recommends, uh, I could be doomed. Now, uh, that's because, as the narrative tells us, uh, to inquire of the Hithophel was like acquiring of the Lord. <laughs> His record was 100% accuracy. <laughs> so uh, uh, David feared the counsel of Ahithophel, and well he might, because of course the first question Absalom faced was, not what should I do, that was plain enough, the question was when should I do it? And of course this is always a question in wisdom, timing. And uh, we, we see that in the whole structure of all wisdom, you know. When do you do it? Uh, uh, the, uh, so many things miscarry because they're not done at the right time. They were the right thing to do, but they were done at the wrong time. And so the question is, uh, when should Absalom uh, try to kill David? Uh, when should he engage in battle against the men with David? And Ahithophel says, very clear, you strike at once. Don't wait till David can gather an army. Uh, you have troops with you. Go out into the wilderness immediately and see that you kill David. Because not until David is dead is the kingdom secure in your hands. As long as David lives, you can't be sure of anything. So uh, go now, strike immediately, kill David, and you've got the kingdom. And uh, that sounds good to Absalom. And he says, well, I think I'll do that. But then he remembers that Hushai has uh, defected to him, which uh, he was pretty scornful about. You remember, is this the way you repay your friend? He said to Hushai when Hushai showed up because he knew Hushai was very close to David uh, emotionally. Is this how you care for your friend? You revert to me. But uh, he calls in Hushai. What's your advice, Hushai? And of course, Hushai uh, appeals to uh, uh, two things. He plays first on Absalom's fear, and then he plays on Absalom's vanity, uh, because he's really got to manipulate Absalom to make him do a dumb thing. So uh, the, the first thing is to work on his fear. He says to, Abs to uh, Absalom, in effect, this advice of going right after David immediately. Yeah, that's, um, that's very interesting. Uh, but uh, don't forget who it is that you're chasing and where you're chasing them. Hmm? Uh, those, those guys with David, 
They were all on the all-star team, every one of them, weren't they? Yeah, sure, these are the mighty men. <laughs> every one of them's a champion. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was Saul uh, chasing David all over the wilderness. Uh, it didn't last for a couple days, did it? It lasted for years. And uh, uh, your, your chances of whooping out into the wilderness and cleaning up on David's mighty men are not uh, uh, that good. Uh, how, uh, what, what rating would you give their possibility? And just suppose, just suppose that there's one little minor engagement and your troops lose. Then it's all over the front pages of the uh, 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 Jerusalem Daily uh, that you have lost and David's won. And uh, that will undercut your kingdom quicker than anything. And then everybody will think, oh, yeah, David won that battle and he'll have no trouble recruiting troops and he won't get anywhere. And, uh, and then uh, the other side of it is, of course, his appeal to Absalom's vanity. Oh, now, Absalom, not to worry. You are, uh, <laughs> you are popular. Remember all the friends you've made uh, standing in the city gate talking to people who aren't getting justice quick enough and think the whole judicial system is tied up and it's time for a change. Remember how you talked to all of them along those lines? Well, you're politically popular, man. And uh, everybody's after you. Everybody loves you. And uh, you're going to have uh, thousands flocking to your standard. They're going to cover the ground the way the dew covers the mountainside. Uh, uh, it wasn't Philadelphia. He would have said the way the ice covers the road. Uh, there, there you are. You, you've completely uh, obliterated all the opposition. You will completely obliterate all the opposition. You'll, you'll possess uh, uh, the land easily. You'll defeat David's troops without any trouble at all. So, sure victory. Uh, don't risk an engagement now. Wait till you have an enormous army, and then it's no contest. And uh, Absalom falls for it. <laughs> Yeah, it is rather dangerous to go fighting David in his own home turf with all those guys with him. <laughs> he might just pull off a, a surprise. <laughs> He's done it before. <laughs> and, uh, hmm. <laughs> and then uh, that matter of popularity, yeah, that, that's certainly right. I know everybody loves me. So, uh, okay, uh, that's the way we'll do it. And Ahithophel uh, hears the decision of Absalom and... Uh, he goes home, puts a few codicils on his last will and testament, and goes out and hangs himself. Uh, there's no sense in waiting for the denouement. He knows what it's going to be. Uh, he, it's over. It's over. And it is. Uh, and you see, um, I, I spent uh, time telling that story because it's such a wonderful story to tell, but also because I wanted you to, to reflect on that, you see how important it is that uh, rulers have wise counselors. <laughs> and uh, we've seen that, haven't we? Just in U.S. politics, uh, when, when there's a president, you always worry about uh, the, the, the people the president might be listening to. You know what I mean? And uh, any president, all through the history of our country, the question always, who's he listening to? And uh, whenever presidents start listening to some people that you trust, uh, then you, uh, you feel better about the situation. Well, there's, um, uh, there's uh, the question. 
kings need counselors. They need people to instruct them in wisdom and give them wise policy. And timing is extremely important. Uh, you see that all the time, don't you, in national politics. The whole question is that not what do you do, but when do you do it? And uh, now, in, uh, as, as we'll note in a moment, uh, in the more cynical aspects of uh, wisdom as it develops in Israel, we'll see the reasons for that, uh, wisdom can be... Uh, uh, well, lampooned a bit, <laughs> uh, which happens in uh, Ecclesiastes uh, when the idea of timing is made fun of, really. See, uh, there's a time for everything, a time to build and a time to tear down, a time to plant and a time to pull up, uh, a time to fight and a time to love, uh, a time to love and a time to hate. And back in the 60s, uh, that passage used to be on posters put on uh, the wall of many, many dorm rooms. It was um, enormously popular. I suspect mostly because of the line, a time to love and a time to hate, which fits in uh, very uh, suitably with adolescent development at the college level. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, you, you have this, this statement, you see, and, and unfortunately, there are preachers who have preached on it with an absolutely straight face, exhorting their people uh, that it is indeed true that there's a time for everything. Well, <laughs> uh, the point in Ecclesiastes is, why bother? <laughs> If there's a time for everything, uh, wisdom is self-defeating. Uh, now it tells you this, now it tells you that. Everything goes around, the water goes up in the clouds, it rains in the sea, it comes around, goes back up again. Uh, I mean, uh, I got it reversed, haven't I? It comes down from the clouds, goes down the streams into the sea, goes up in the clouds, comes around. Everything goes around. And since it all goes around, uh, there's a time for everything. Uh, so, a vanity of vanities, everything's vanity. What's the percentage? Uh, that's, uh, that's what we're being asked in that passage in, in Ecclesiastes. So, we have to learn then, as uh, redemption uh, develops, how important timing is uh, in a true wisdom. See? And uh, that's where you get the Apostle Paul uh, telling us uh, to uh, buy up the occasion because the times are evil. See, we live in evil times, but we are given precious opportunities. And uh, the idea is uh, timing is important, that in Christ, having the wisdom that we find in Christ, we can also have the courage uh, to act uh, when it is time, the right time. And of course, the other side of it is uh, the answer that you begin to get in the apocalyptic literature. Uh, is uh, the times uh, do go around, empires do rise and fall, uh, but there's going to be a great end time. Uh, the kingdoms of the world come up out of the sea like beasts, but there's coming a time when the kingdom of God will come and it will strike the image of the uh, heathen empire and demolish it and it will become a great mountain uh, in, in the book of Daniel. 
and it will fill the whole earth. Now see, there again is an apocalyptic answer to the question of time. Uh, does time just keep going around in circles, one empire up, another one down, unendingly? No, no, no. It's going somewhere. It's getting somewhere because uh, the, the Lord himself is coming. And then there will be the great answer of God's answer to timing. But it will come in God's time. Uh, God is perfectly wise and therefore his timing is impeccable. God always knows not only what to do, but when to do it. And in his time, uh, it will be done. And of course, this is an emphasis in the whole Old Testament, isn't it? Uh, uh, Isaac is born in God's time, not Abraham's time, not Sarah's time, but God's time. And of course, God's time doesn't mean some transcendent dimension that has nothing to do with our time. That's not the point. Uh, God's time means his timing in history, that he does the act at the time. Uh, it's in the fullness of time that Jesus Christ comes, the fullness of God's time, uh, his plan. Uh, now, the other thing uh, I haven't mentioned <clears throat> is uh, uh, that this is, of course, uh, relating uh, these uh, issues of wisdom to God directly. Uh, when you come into the apocalyptic, you're talking about how God is going to solve the problem of universal timing, uh, the, the epochs, the seasons, the times will come to the end in the latter days, the last great time. But also, the individual problem, which is the mystery of suffering, the mystery of the suffering of the righteous. How can that problem be solved? And that's the other problem that is struggled with in the wisdom literature. Um, doesn't the same thing happen to everybody? The book of Ecclesiastes the wise man and the fool, they both die. So what's the difference? Uh, but uh, wisdom has to do with the, uh, the answers to the mystery of suffering uh, as you find it uh, in the revelation of God. <clears throat> um, we'll take a break, uh, our, take our break at this point uh, because I think it's a natural breaking point in the, in the lecture. And then we'll pick up again after. Now, <clears throat> we're looking at, at wisdom, the, the doctrine of wisdom, and talking about how wisdom is concerned with relationships. Uh, but wisdom is also concerned uh, with knowing the Lord. Um, excuse me, this wasn't plugged in. Uh, concerned with knowing the Lord, uh, then sh shalt, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Uh, see, uh, the wisdom is said to begin... Uh-oh, thank you. Good. I didn't even notice that we weren't in action there. Thanks a lot. Uh, uh, wisdom uh, begins with the fear of the Lord and the ultimate wisdom is the knowledge of the Lord. So uh, wisdom is uh, from start to finish uh, personal, it involves knowing God. Uh, <clears throat> Paul's prayers show that, Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. See, there's that enlightening of the eyes of our heart, uh, which uh, enables us to know him. And that uh, knowledge is given by the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, the forms... Uh, the forms of Old Testament wisdom literature uh, are, of course, the poetic forms of uh, ancient Hebrew um, uh, poetry. Um, I forget whether I put that sheet in your outline or not. Do you have uh, the poetic structure things in there, synonymous, complementarity, focusing, and all that? Uh, I guess I must have decided to skip that, knowing this is such a short course. Well, uh, the, I just refer you there to uh, uh, Robert Alter, The Art of Biblical Poetry. The Art of Biblical Poetry. I think I mentioned his name before. Robert Alter, A-L-T-E-R, The Art of Biblical Poetry. Maybe some of you, how many of you have read Alter's stuff in other courses? Uh, three or four of you have. Uh, well, this is, uh, this is very important for understanding the structure of the poetic literature uh, of the Bible. And, of course, this applies to the wisdom literature at all, uh, above all. But, uh, well, not above all, but equally with the Psalms. But uh, <clears throat> the main point I want to make is this, that we all know that there is parallelism in uh, Hebrew poetry. Uh, but uh, the important thing to know is that the parallelism is seldom that of uh, complete identity. It's seldom simply synonymous. Now, sometimes it is. For example, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who utters lies will not escape. That's Proverbs 19.5. Now, that's complete uh, synonymous parallelism. See, each member says the same thing, uh, just synonyms. A false witness will not go unpunished. He who utters lies will not escape. Uh, but more often, uh, there's some kind of development from the first member to the second member of the parallelism. Uh, for example, here's a complementary kind of development. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the back of fools. See, there, there are two similar situations that are compared by analogy. As you would use uh, a, a stick for a horse, you need to use a rod for a fool. It, it, man behaving in a way that needs the kind of correction you'd give to uh, uh, an animal.